Well, have you ever been homesick? I mean, truly, truly homesick. That feeling of just longing to be back in that familiar environment, knowing the routine, having a certain sense of security and and safety. Well, over the next couple weeks, there's going to be nearly 3,000 freshmen who will come here to normal, and they will start this new life adventure at ISU. And I think it's pretty safe to say that over the next month or so, they will experience that beloved feeling of homesickness. In fact, uh, estimates say that 50 to 75% of people have felt homesickness at one point in life, and I'm certain most experience during it, uh, experience homesickness during their freshman year. All except for me, because my story was a little different. My freshman year of college, I lived on campus, but I lived in my own home with my parents, my three siblings, and my grandmother. I didn't have a chance to experience homesickness after moving into a dorm room, eating that beloved cafeteria food, having to wake up early enough to take a warm shower, and I know you all are feeling bad for me right now because I didn't have that experience. My freshman year was different than most. I didn't have to figure out how to save enough quarters to do my own laundry because my mom did my laundry for me. And now you all feel really, really bad for me. But the summer after my freshman year, I did finally have the opportunity to experience homesickness. I left home that summer to travel with a singing group, and it wasn't long before I grew tired and, if I'm honest, quite annoyed with the other seven college students I was spending hours upon hours with in that van, going from church to church singing. And that longing to just be back at home overwhelmed me. I became homesick. Now, some of you are familiar with that feeling. It's, it's not uncommon to have homesickness. Even this summer, as some of us were at uh, Camp Manitoumi with the junior hires, some of those junior hires were feeling a little homesickness during that week. But if you go about and ask anyone who is homesick, what is it that they are truly missing? If you ask them what they are truly longing for, I'm, I'm almost certain they're not going to say, I just want to be back in my own bed. I just, I just miss that comfortable sofa we have in the basement with the, the soda stain and that musty popcorn smell. That's just really what I want to sit on tonight. No, most will say they miss someone, not just somewhere or something. Oh, we might have those longings to be back in the, the security and safety of our own home, but it's not really our bed that we miss. It's the people who make up our home that we miss, dad and mom. And maybe in some odd cases, our siblings too. We long to be with someone. We long for the security, the safety of being with someone. Well, here in Psalm 48, the song we hear from the lips of the psalmist, the sons of Korah, is not a ballad of the homesick, but a song, nevertheless, that centers on longing to be with someone. Not just be somewhere. Now, the truth be told, as we just read through this psalm, at first it may have sounded like the psalmist is all about a certain place, the city, that holy mountain, Mount Zion. But what we come to find at the end of this psalm is that, as one commentator notes, the psalm is not in praise of Zion except as God's abode. And so as we 
come to verse 14, when we're expecting the crowning glory of the city, we don't hear of it anymore. We hear only of God. This is God. And so, as Willem reminded us last week, Psalm 48 is, you could say, the, the third stanza of one larger psalm exalting in the greatness of our God. Psalm 46, the first stanza, focusing on God as our great refuge and strength in the midst of trouble. Psalm 47, the second stanza, focuses on God as the the great king who reigns over all the nations. And then here this morning in Psalm 48, we have the proper responses to the greatness of God. Now, while these psalmists don't specifically mention the circumstances from which these psalms spring from, most theologians believe they are the result of God's decisive victory for the Israelites over Sennacherib's invasion of Judah. It's recorded for us in 2 Kings 19. What the Israelites had just experienced was God's protecting presence. He had proven himself to be their mighty fortress, and their victorious king. And as always the case, when God makes himself known as his creation, we are called to worship. And so let's do that this morning through Psalm 48. Let's worship our God forever and ever. Psalm 48 unfolds for us the correct responses to God's greatness. That is, great joy. There is great gladness in our God. But then there's also tormenting fear for the opponents of God. And then lastly, we'll see a a passionate telling, a going with this good news that this is our God forever and ever. You see, what I believe God reveals to us through this psalm and what I believe we as a church need to be called to action with this morning is this truth. The greatness of God must be shared with the next generation. The greatness of God must be shared with the next generation. For when we experience his protecting presence, that should ignite within us a joy that we we just can't keep to ourselves. When we have tasted and seen that he is good, I mean, how in the world can we keep quiet about that? How can we not have a passion for telling someone that this is God, this is God, our God, forever and ever? And yet, the truth is, if we're honest with ourselves, we are are far too satisfied with this world and the things of this world that we not only don't long for God's presence, we aren't homesick for him, but the result of that is our failure to passionately share him with others. As author C.S. Lewis so profoundly notes, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are, are far too easily pleased. And so, friends, this morning, the question that we must ask ourselves and that this psalm confronts us with is, who are we sharing the greatness of God with? Are we homesick for him? Do we long to be in his presence? And then who am I telling 
that this is God. For when we have truly experienced the greatness of God, we can't keep our joy silent. And so notice, first of all, this morning, how the greatness of God produces great joy in his people. There's a great gladness when they know his protecting presence. The psalmist begins by extolling the greatness of the Lord and his worthiness to be praised as he he looks over the city of Jerusalem, that great royal city. The fact that he uses his personal covenant name of God here must not go unnoticed. And so notice there in verse 1, great is the Lord. Most of our English translations, the translators have identified this name with Lord in all capital letters. This is the Hebrew name Yahweh, I am. And each time that this would have been used among the people of Israel, it would have reminded them of God's self-revelation to Moses back in Exodus 3 through the burning bush. It was there that God spoke to Moses, promising that he would deliver his people from slavery out of Egypt. But not only promising deliverance, but also that he would be with them. His presence would be with them. His presence that would be proven time and time again and provided for them as they went throughout their journey through the wilderness and then finally the conquest of the promised land. All of this would have been the story of God's providing and protecting presence that was retold from generation to generation among the children of Israel. Through just that name, Yahweh, the Lord, the great I am. And so right away, the psalmist wants to remind us of the promises of God and his presence with us. Even the city of Jerusalem, this Mount Zion, was a reminder of God's presence and provision. The city itself was surrounded with a great wall and citadels that provided security for the people within. All of this was not just great in and of itself. No, its greatness was only because God had made himself known as a fortress through this city. Look at verse 3. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. Again, in verse 9, we have another avenue in which God had made himself known, not only through this, this city and the holy mountain, but notice that it says in the temple. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. You see, it's within this place of worship for the people of Israel where they would bring their sacrifices and where the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifices of sin offering before God. This place was a simple reminder and picture of God's presence with his people, a reminder of his steadfast love. This is why God's people were to dwell on this, Think on this, meditate on God's steadfast love. This phrase, steadfast love, is the Hebrew word hesed, which is a different kind of love than we might originally think of. Hesed is not that emotional, fluttery, heart kind of love, but a a love of the will. It's a love based on decision, which makes it so powerful and, and personal here. So when he's reminding them not only of who he is, the great I am, but also his presence among them, he says, I am with you and I've shown you, not only in the city, but in the temple. I love how Matt Chandler explains 
this kind of hesed, steadfast love. He says, God is the real I do. When people get married, they, they turn and they face one another. And they give these really impossible covenant promises. And that's what God has done. Except God is able to keep his word. The Lord looks upon his people and says, in sickness and in health, I do. I'm in. You are my people and I am your God. I'm not going anywhere. You're mine. My kindness is yours. My strength is yours. My personal action will be at your attention. I am not going anywhere. I mean, what a strong proclamation from God of his love. It's what sets Christianity outside of all other worldly religions. No other world religion has a God who promises to flex his power, might, and holiness in order to love his people unconditionally. See, friends, this is the truth about our God that produces this great joy and gladness. Great is the Lord. He is here with us. As your name, verse 10, O God, so your praises reaches to the ends of the earth. As your name, Yahweh, that covenant promising, always keeping God of I do love, so your praise reaches the ends of the earth. His righteousness brings gladness. His judgments cause his people to rejoice. Friends, this is God. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forever and ever. The question we must ask ourselves is, is he our joy? Is he your joy? Do you long to be with God? To be in his presence? To take in all he has to say to you? To speak to him? Our mission here at Calvary is to help people find joy in Jesus. And yet, how can we help people find joy in him, if he isn't our joy. And so we must first ask ourselves, are we, do we have this joy, this gladness in God that the psalmist is speaking of here? But then as we continue throughout the psalm, we not only see the greatness of God producing great joy, but also tormenting fear. Look at verses 4 through 8 once again. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together. As soon as they saw it, that is, the greatness of God through this city, Mount Zion, where he has made himself known, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. Trembling took hold of them there. Anguish as a woman in labor. By the east wind you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the, of the Lord Yahweh of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever and ever. When the people of God find great joy in his presence, God's opponents shudder in tormenting fear. Now, how do you respond when someone frightens you? Do you run away? Do you scream? Do you faint? I have to be honest, I love those fainting goats videos where they go up and scare the goat and the goat just falls over. Those are hilarious. I could have been caught in watching those videos over and over again in prep. I, I contained myself on YouTube this week. Sometimes when we play hide-and-go-seek at our house, 
Uh, I'll just all of a sudden just go hide. And the kids are like, where's dad? And they'll have to find me. Sometimes I'll jump out and I'll scare them. And usually one of them screams. Karis specifically at times has just stopped and fallen over. Not fainted quite yet, though that is a little bit of a goal that I have now, that she might faint at some point because I'm scaring her. But there's all kinds of different responses to fear. Well, here in these verses, the psalmist describes what happens to the opponents, the enemies of God as they advance against the city. They froze in fear. And yet, again, notice it wasn't just the city of Jerusalem. Though it's man-made defenses that caused this. No, these were seasoned conquerors who had taken down much bigger and better fortified cities than Jerusalem. And so what is it that stopped their opponents in their tracks? And what causes this panic, the trembling, the agony like that of a woman in labor? It was none other than God himself. Again, the story of the Israelites demonstrate over and over again how God's greatness has terrified the nations. Again, if we were to go back to the book of Exodus and go to chapter 15, there Moses recounts the effect of God's presence on his enemies, the Egyptians, as that family of Israel was delivered from slavery. In verse 1 we read, For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. And then the effect of that in verse 16, Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone. This is God. Our God. He is to be feared above all gods, writes the psalmist in Psalm 96. His greatness produces this tormenting fear. And now some of you this morning that are here may still have that tormenting fear when you hear about God and his holiness. For I have to believe in a setting of this many people that there is someone here this morning that is still in opposition to God and his ways. Friend, if that's you this morning, if you're here without a relationship with God, first of all, let me say thank you for coming. You see, we as a church want people to come into these doors who do not yet know God as their Savior so that we might tell you this is God. And we might share with you the goodness of his grace in the person and work of Jesus. But before the good news is good at all, you, you have to hear the bad news. And this is it. This is it here in verses 4 through 8, that our God is terrifying. For in his holiness, we as rebellious humans, created by him in his image to reflect and worship him, we are unable to be with him in his presence because of our sin. And so we have been separated from God, made entirely deserving objects of his full and furious wrath. The astonishment, the the panic, the trembling, the anguish felt here by the enemies of Zion is the same terror each and every one of us should experience when we see God. You see, friend, our God is terrifying. But the good news is, he's loving as well. For the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5, God shows his love for us in that while we were still Sinners, still opponents, enemies, trembling, astonished, in panic and anguish, Jesus Christ died. 
for us. This is the good news that Jesus Christ, God's son, came down to live here on earth, live a life that we were created to live in relationship with him, bearing God's image. But he lived wholly pleasing to God without any sin, without any rebellion. And when the people of Israel failed, and oh boy, they failed miserably over and over again. And where you and I each have failed, Jesus did not fail. But still, he died in our place. He died so that we would not experience the full terror of God's wrath for eternity in that lake of fire called hell, totally separated from him. But then get this, friend. Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose again, and this, if this isn't the greatness of God on display, I don't know what is. A dead man coming back to life, and then in him, we who have placed our faith in him, we have eternal life that starts today, this very day, as we turn to him in faith, repentance away from sin. I mean, that's good news, isn't it, church? That is the good news of our God. And so, friend, if you do not know the goodness of God, turn to him today. He's terrifying, but he's good. He's loving. You see, this is our God forever and ever. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of this that we read here in Psalm 48. He's the fulfillment of this city. He is the fulfillment of the temple. He is the one who came to dwell among us, to be with us. For us, church, Paul tells us that we now, through the Spirit, those of us who have turned in faith, God now dwells in us through the Spirit, and we now are the presence of God. When we are gathered together, he is in our midst. When we go from this place, he goes with us. And so not only do we see here that the greatness of God produces great joy in his people and tormenting fear in his opponents, but also the greatness of God produces a passionate telling, going with this news about God. And what is perhaps the greatest modern-day classic Christmas movie, there's this scene where Buddy the Elf burst into his father's conference room exclaiming, I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows it. And I know all of you wanted me to twist around like Buddy does. Sorry, that's not going to happen. The scene happens right after Buddy goes on his date with Jovi, and like all those who are young and in love, he just can't not share this news. I mean, you've been in that situation before, haven't you? And maybe it wasn't after a date, but maybe it's a similar situation when you experience something so exciting that you just had to tell someone else about it. Maybe it was that promotion at work. Maybe you got a big bonus at work. Maybe your grandchild was just born and you just, you have to say something, don't you? You just can't keep it quiet. You have so much joy and telling of that completes that joy. You're so excited, you just have to share it. Well, that's the encouragement the psalmist concludes with here in verses 12 through 14. Walk about Zion, he says. Go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. He tells them to go around the city and notice how the enemy wasn't even able to leave a mark on its towers. 
They weren't even able to leave a mark on the ramparts and citadels. They're all in the same pristine condition they were before, not because Israel was so great, but because God was so great, because of God's protecting presence. But then notice the psalmist doesn't just stop there. No, he's, he's not content with gawkers. He's not interested in God's people becoming mere bystanders to God's work. He's not about people just sitting in the pew, doing nothing. No, he tells them why they should go about the city and look at what God's done. Do you see it? It's there at the end of verse 13. I'll wait while you read it for yourself. You're reading it, right? You saw it. Okay, let me read it for us all. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels. Why? Here it is. So that you can make sure the walls are nicely painted and the buildings stay pristine. No, that's not what it says. So that you can report back to the priest so he can be the one to make sure it stays nice. Okay? Wrong again, huh? So that you can hire more pastors and staff to do the work of the ministry for you. Oh, doesn't say that. that I must be reading from one of those modern-day American church translations. But sadly, that's how most of the church today views God's work today, isn't it? That's not at all what it says here. Here's why. Here's why they're to go around, number the towers, go through the citadels, that you may tell the next generation that this is God. Our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. Here's what the greatness of God produces. It produces great joy in his people, a tormenting fear in his opponents, but that results in a passionate telling that this is God, this is what God's people are called to after seeing his greatness, to tell the next generation. This is what completes our joy in him. This is what Paul instructs Titus to do at the island of Crete in Titus 2. Instruct the older men and women to teach and train the younger men and women. To say it as Jesus said it, to go and make disciples. You see, making disciples is as old as Psalm 48. Actually, it's older than that. For in Deuteronomy 6, we read something quite similar, this call to action for the people of God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your might. There is great joy in our God, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And you shall do what? You shall tell the next generation You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You see, this has been and still is the mission for God's people to tell others. So how about you, friend? What What are you doing as you walk around and you see God's goodness as you think and reflect back on his steadfast love for you? Are you keeping it to yourself? Or are you telling others? Who are you telling about God's greatness? Do you have someone younger than you, the next generation that you're pulling in close to you, 
And you're telling them this. Oh, this is God. This is what God has done for me. Our God forever and ever. And he's guided me and he will guide you. You see, this isn't the work of the elite. Nor is it the work of the compensated. No, this is the work of all the saints. From the freshmen to the seniors. And so, who are you telling about God's greatness? Who will you tell this week? Let's get really practical here as we conclude. Most of you are going to have coffee at some point this week. Most of you will probably eat lunch, dinner, breakfast at some point. Who are you going to invite to join you so that you can tell them about God's greatness? Who's that younger person than you here in this auditorium that you can just say, hey, I'm grabbing coffee at McDonald's on Thursday morning. Why don't you come? I'm going to share with you about God's greatness, what he has done for me, how he has guided me forever and ever. Dad, Mom, when is the time this week when you can pull your kids aside and tell them about God's greatness? Maybe it's that ice cream cone that they have been begging for. All right, let's go. And isn't it awesome that our God has given us little gifts like this, a small little cone, so good? Oh, we can taste and see that he is far better. Oh, you might say, Dan, I'm just not able to do that. Okay, then let me give you another option. If you're a covenant member of Calvary, you have access to what is called the church directory right here in our handy-dandy little phones and on the app. You have access to the directory there, and I want to encourage you to start going through it. See someone in here that you can text. You can send an email telling the next generation of his greatness. If you're a member and your information's not in here or if you need access to it, let us know. We'll make sure you you get it because we don't want you to miss out on being a blessing or receiving a blessing of disciple-making of telling or hearing of God's greatness displayed in the life of one of your brothers and sisters. You see, that's what the church is all about. That is what we are called to do. We're to bring people together and tell them, this is our God. Who will you tell this week of God's greatness? In 1956, five young missionaries were speared to death by the Aka Indians as they sought to tell the gospel to that primitive tribe. Most of us have heard the story of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, but there's another man that was killed that day named Roger Udarian. On that fateful day, his wife, Barbara, wrote these words in her journal. She wrote, Tonight the captain told us of his finding four bodies in the river. One had a t-shirt and blue jeans. Raj was the only one who wore them. But God gave me this verse two days ago, Psalm 48, 14, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide forever, even unto death. So she writes, as I came face to face with the news of Roger's death, my heart was filled with praise, for he was worthy of his home going. Oh, what a, what a hope the psalm ends with. He will be our guide forever. 
as we go and we share, we tell the next generation because his greatness has produced within us great joy and we see his opponents trembling in fear. Oh, it gives us great hope that God will be with us. Even as Jesus promised his disciples that as you go, I will be with you. You see, friends, knowing that this God is our God gives us a sense of belonging for we are recipients of his steadfast I do love. Knowing that this God is our God gives us a sense of purpose. We know our mission to spread the greatness of God to the next generation. Knowing that this God is our God gives us a sense of peace. For we know he will guide us forever and ever. This is our God. So Father, as we have heard from you this morning, I pray that we now would start that work of repentance and faith. Repenting where we have not yet found you our true joy. So if there's someone here this morning that I've just spoken to, shared with them the bad but also the good news, God, that you would do that miracle of regeneration in their heart right now. You would turn them from a heart of stone to a living heart, from dead to alive that they would come to you in repentance and faith. For those of us here who our joy may have been distracted to the things of this world, would you ignite that in us once again so that we might worship you knowing you have provided protection and even greater your presence where there's fullness of joy. And may we May we just dwell in your presence, finding ourselves hearing from you as we open your word, communicating with you as we cry out in prayer. And then as we see the opponents trembling in fear, God, may that stir within us a heart to tell the next generation, to tell your opponents that you are great and you are terrifying, but you're also loving and good. God, I pray that as we go this week, And each and every one of us would grab someone and we would tell them of your greatness. That we would not just look at all that you have done and just sit back. But we would go. And we would tell others, this is God. He is good. He's been good to me. And he'll be good to you.